Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. It is Thursday, July the 30th, 2020. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to the patrons that help make the show possible as well. Mark, Chris, Nancy, Lori, Stephen, Joseph, John, Meredith, Kim, and Patty and Shan. I appreciate all of the support. I couldn't do it without you guys. Um, Matt Taibbi is a reporter for Rolling Stone magazine, and he calls this book, quote, maybe the dumbest book ever written. He also called it, quote, impressively crazy. The author's writing style was pure pain built around the principles of George Orwell's Newspeak. What am I talking about? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. First, I want to tell you about Red Rock Photography, okay? Have you ever seen images of the Blue Ridge Mountains that are so captivating, so amazing, that you just find yourself staring at them for minutes, maybe longer? You just can't even look away? That's what I felt like when I started seeing Stacy Redmond's work at redrockphotonc.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina. He's been shooting landscapes for like 20 years after he realized life is short. You don't get your time back. So do what you love and don't regret not spending time with your family or chasing your dream. So that's what he does. Red Rock Photography. His work is brilliant. It is beautiful. It is easily affordable for any space. See for yourself. Go to his website, redrockphotonc.com and use the promo code Pete, my name, Pete, for 20% off redrockphotonc.com. Dr. Robin D'Angelo, quote, vaulted to superstardom upon the 2018 publication of her book called White Fragility. Maybe you've heard of it. It argues that all whites are racist and any rejection of that fact is only further evidence of it. Uh, we are joined by the man who wrote those words, Charles Fane Lehman. He is a staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon. And Charles, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Hey, Pete, thanks for having me on. Sure, sure. So the, uh, the the piece you've got is called The Wages of Woke, How Robin D'Angelo Got Rich Peddling White Fragility. And um, this book, my wife actually came to me. She said, oh, somebody on Facebook mentioned it. This was, I don't know, a month or so ago, and probably after the George Floyd uh, uh, death. And they uh, And they said, oh, everybody needs to read this. But the book has been around for a while, so this is sort of a... Right, a reemergence of sorts for her work, and it's based on the current events, I assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the book White Fragility was originally released in 2018. Um, it's through a small press called, I think, Beacon Press, uh, which is associated with the Unitarian Universalists, um, and it debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. It was like number seven or eight back in 2018, sort of fell off the list, but continued to be reasonably influential and talked about. And then in the wake, as you say, of George Floyd's death, uh, there's been just this explosion of interest in all associated uh, books in, you know, books that focus on quote unquote racism in America. 
Um, and those have sort of shot to the top of the Amazon charts, the New York Times bestseller list, uh, and White Fragility has really been at the top of the top of those charts alongside uh, Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be Anti-Racist, um, and I think a couple of others how to talk about race, uh, but really is, is has been the dominant reading material more or less in nonfiction over the past several months. And so when you describe this philosophy, this white fragility that says all whites are racist and any rejection of that fact is only further evidence of it, um, is that hyperbolic, exaggerative? Is that or is that actually what white fragility is? Well, so so D'Angelo's background is that she works as a um, uh, an anti-bias educator. She she teaches. She goes to maybe you attended one of these workshops. She goes to uh, private firms. She goes to public meetings, and she talks about uh, what she views as uh, causes and sources of racism and how to address them. Um, and this is an enormous industry. Uh, statistics I cite in the piece note that back in 2003, that what's called the diversity and inclusion industry DNI was worth about eight billion dollars. Um, we have no idea how big it is today, but it's almost certainly grown bigger. I was just talking to a guy from the DNI industry the other day who told me that it's exploded even in the past couple of months. Hmm. But so anyway, uh, Robin D'Angelo conducts these workshops that you may be familiar with, and White Fragility is really her name for. I think, based upon my reading, is really her name for uh, the set of responses that she receives when she tells her white audience, particularly a liberal white audience, that uh, even though they don't like to admit it, they themselves are racist because they're complicit in and benefit from a structure or system of white supremacy, which is a very academic, modern uh, ethnic studies way of thinking about it. Um, and what she identifies in her practice is all of these different uh, ways that people respond, where they get mad or they argue or they say that's not reasonable or we need to treat people like individuals. Um, and all of these she identifies as, in fact, simply manifestations of uh, white people having a, quote, uh, lack of racial stamina, where they're unable to have conversations where they're told that they're racist over and over and over again, um, <laughs> which, you, which is ultimately yeah. right, which is ultimately evidence in her view that they are, in fact, racist. So, you know, right. <laughs> saying that you don't want you aren't racist is evidence that you are racist. Right. And the use of the term stamina, racial stamina, that's actually a term, right? Like that's. That's what she describes it as. This, I mean, yes. it sounds ridiculous when you hear it, but that's actually part of her philosophy that she or her instruction, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, that that's correct. I think so. If you go all the way back to the early, I think it's two thousand. Uh, I'm blanking on the year. I want to say it's two thousand three um, when she published her her PhD dissertation. Um, that's a it's a three hundred word three hundred page document about. Uh, what she calls the master discourses of whiteness, which are individualism and universalism, right? So, like, like, her conceit is that part of what makes whiteness whiteness as a cultural entity is this sort of, like, belief in individualism as a value, um, uh, which, you know, is, is, is sort of a disturbing concept to suggest that only white people are really able to be individualist and only white people have sort of a sense of individual responsibility as opposed to everyone being able to do that regardless of race um but so so these are not new ideas for her uh she's been sort of honing this uh for some time and has a great deal of abstruse academic language that boils down to uh anything which is other than agreeing with her analysis of how race works is in and of itself evidence that you are racist and when you call your audience racist they get mad at you for calling them racist and then that 
proves that they are racist because they got mad. If I, I think I got that right. This is her precisely. Yeah, this is her instruction. So, um, and you you point out that this is the kind of instruction that she is selling, right? She's selling ostensibly, I guess, the cure for this racism, but but maybe not because I don't think her work leaves any kind of avenue for a cure, right? But she just goes in and 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 holds forth these classes that doesn't act, none of them actually cure racism if i am understanding this correctly yeah so so i talk a little bit about in the piece there's a great deal of scientific research on the effects of uh anti-bias training and diversity inclusion training more broadly and generally what they find is that either there's no effect if you're trying to measure things like uh the workplace environment or the number of executives who are hired who are women or minorities there's no effect or in some cases there's a negative effect which is to say that companies use that use anti-bias training hire fewer uh managing executives from uh, certain underrepresented groups um, and part of the part of what's driving that is that if you go to field research and you watch people attend to these things, the primary effect is that it people have exactly the response that Robin D'Angelo describes. They are upset and angry at being called racist. It can induce greater quote unquote racial consciousness in a negative way, which is to say like it can make uh, it, it can make people more strongly identify with their race and less strongly identify with people of other races. Um, and it can also cause resentment and even increased discrimination. Uh, against people of other races. Um, so really, you know, in, in some senses, the way that I think white fragility as a concept works is that D'Angelo looks at all of these negative responses that seem to be the product of what she is doing. The, you know, her, her quote-unquote anti-racist work is inducing more racism. And she looks and goes, oh, well, this is evidence that clearly we need more of my workshops, which is a pretty power, powerful profit model when you think about it. Right. So let's not begrudge somebody for coming up with a really good money making idea here. Right. If it's <laughs> it's if you've identified a uh, a need in the marketplace. Right. And um, it's something that can help people not be racist anymore and it could eliminate racism. I mean, it doesn't do those things, but like that's what she is essentially selling. And I was astounded I've been doing appearances for people for free. I am not I was not aware you could make this kind of money she makes at these types of appearances. And, and what kind of and she does these uh what she does seminars, she does speeches. At one point I think in your piece you mentioned she gets paid she was getting paid by the minute on a phone call. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not charging uh, you by the way for this phone call. I just want to make that clear. That's very nice of you. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, the, the piece was originally prompted. There was a note. She did an interview in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and I did some math. The Times said, oh, she charges $15,000 for uh, a single appearance. She does eight to 10 appearances a month, which is uh, ballpark a million and a half dollars a year. If you if you do the multiplication um, and that may actually be lowballing it. So the you know uh, the number on five minutes uh, you know five bucks a minute she charges that's from a University of Kentucky um, presentation I think where mm -hmm. the I, the Daily Caller News Foundation obtained her um, our friend my friends over there obtained her uh, contract with the university it's a public university and it said if you want to talk to Dr D'Angelo on the phone you can but it'll cost you three hundred and twenty bucks an hour. Um, and that was on top of the $12,000 speaking fee. But on the other hand, as I note in the piece, 
uh, I got quoted even higher numbers. I reached out to a speaker's bureau that represents her and said, how much would it cost her to come? And they said, well, if you want it for an hour, that'll be $30,000. If you want it for half a day, that'll be $40,000. So, you know, it's a, it's a good deal at half a day. Yeah. It's only 25% more. Um, and so there's all of that money which she's made on the speaking circuit. That's on top of the money that she's likely made on her book. So her publisher tells me that she sold 1.6 million copies of the book uh a million of those by the way have been since the start of this year alone uh ballpark estimate if they're charging 16 bucks a book if she's conservatively estimating if she's making eight percent royalties and that's you know well below most people make 10 to 15 percent she might be making better she's making eight percent royalties she's made two million dollars off of that book um so that's on top of the forty thousand dollars that she's getting in attending corporate events for uh, some of America's most powerful corporations, the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, Levi's, Unilever, you name it. Um, they, uh, the House Democratic Caucus brought her in to talk to them. Well, they didn't pay her, uh, but clearly <laughs> she is uh, getting money, a great deal of money from the upper echelons of power. Yeah. Uh, I did not know it was so profitable. What if what if the organization is particularly racisty, though? Like, do you get does she get more money if the if she's going like if she's going to do an anti-racism? I don't know it like the Klan rally or something. Maybe she could probably command more. I would just think because it would be more I, more work. I I, <laughs> I I I could only guess, but I mean, I you know, I I, I do think it's significant that uh, I mean, her, her book has been put on top of reading recommendation lists of so Le- Levi's and Harvard University, or I think it's the Harvard magazine, uh, put her book on their list of anti-racist reading recommendations. And what's really interesting to me is you know, th- these are these are not stupid people. The research on the fact that anti-bias training doesn't work comes from Harvard. It comes right. uh, in large part. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are a couple of folks over there who have done uh, – one, the, one of the great pieces on this is in the Harvard Business Review. So – Somebody should be able to put the dots together, and I think a lot of what goes on there is that being able to say we paid Robin DiAngelo to come talk to us is a great way to get a, get away from accusations of racism. If you're able to say we we gave Robin DiAngelo some money and she told us not to be racist, and look now we're not racist anymore, then allegations of racism that your institution might face can be conveniently swept under the rug. So in some senses, the service she is offering is not uh, trainings that don't work. The service that she is offering is being able to say that you took the trainings that don't work and therefore uh, have your reputation legitimated thereby. Yeah, it's insulation. Yeah, you're buying. It's a protection racket, essentially, uh, much the same way that a lot of race hustlers have uh, run operations like this in the past. You, you donate money to their foundation or their charity uh, and then they don't ever target you. Um it's almost uh, and and honestly, like there are. I read a piece by John McWhorter a, a, a little while ago, uh, and he equated it to this anti-racism thing. He equated it to religion, and what you've just described is the selling of indulgences, right? Like that's what she's doing. Is here you go. This is your sort of get out of hell free card. If you just bring me and and pay me thirty grand, then here's your yeah, here's your stamp. Not a racist. Uh, that that shall protect you. I guess. My guest is Charles Fane Lehman. We'll get back with him in a minute. First, speaking of protecting you, do you want a way to protect your workplace uh, for your customers and for your employees um, so you're not constantly wiping stuff down all the time, right? It's a lot of work in these COVID times. The Karcher Misting System with Vital Oxide Disinfectant and General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, this is your solution, okay? 
The Karcher Misting System from General Equipment Rental. It is safe for kids and pets, and it is safe for food contact services. It uses an all-in-one, hospital-grade, EPA-approved, germicidal disinfectant sanitizer and deodorizer. This thing kills 99.9% of infection-causing bacteria and viruses, including, yes, COVID-19 or the coronavirus. Uh, No rinse required. It's non-toxic, hypoallergenic, odorless, colorless, and 100% biodegradable. It's really easy to move it around. It's on four wheels and it's cordless and you just roll it around, spray everything down, and then it's treated for up to 10 days. And so then all you're doing is spot cleaning. The Karcher Mister at General Equipment Rental in Weaverville at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. Family owned and operated for three generations. And go to generalrents.com slash Pete and get a coupon for two free cloth face coverings. Talk about getting some protection. Generalrents.com. General Equipment Rental. Think outside your toolbox. The piece is called The Wages of Woke. It's written by Charles Fane Lehman, staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon. Um, And you say uh, that the white fragility uh, uh, author claims to believe in accountability. And uh, she has like extensive accountability statements. So I guess first off, I need to ask you, what are accountability statements? And then... Uh, you did something novel. I think it's. Uh, I think they call it journalism. Is you actually went and started calling some of these entities that she was saying she was accountable to. So, uh, first off, what is an accountability statement, and then what did you find when you started calling around? Yeah. So the accountability statement she talks about, both on the her, she talks about her own uh, quote unquote anti racist behavior, and also what that looks like more generally. And the general concept is, you know, you lay out your set of anti racist practices, who you're giving money to and supporting. Uh, how you're she she talks about quote unquote white affinity groups, which is a disturbing concept to me. Um, <laughs> I, I I think if we talked about white affinity groups twenty years ago in this country, they would be labeled as racist and rightly so. Um, like as you mentioned, the, the the Klan sure thinks of itself as a white affinity group. I would think so. Um, yeah. What is, well, so wait, what is a white affinity group then? Uh, it's 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 a white people organizing around discussing their whiteness. Um, oh my and God. presumably in a negative way, but. Uh, that that sort of thing tends to end poorly in historical experience. But so um, the accountability statement that she posted uh, a couple of weeks ago when I started reporting this piece uh, included some discussion of a whole group of a whole bunch of organizations that she claimed to have donated money to. These were organizations that supported black or native American causes, at least claimed to do so. Um, She also claims to be one of the 7,000 people who live in Seattle and give land rent to the Duwamish tribe, who are uh, uh, a tribe. They're not a federally recognized tribe, but they're the group of people who originally lived in the land that is Seattle. You can give a token donation to them every month as quote-unquote rent. Um, so what happened was uh, I saw this list and I said, okay, I will reach out to all of these organizations because I'm a journalist and that's what journalists do. I didn't hear back from any of them. But then two days later, she'd taken down the list uh, and said that they had begun to be harassed. Um, and then... <laughs> The day before the piece came out, she updated the page again to say, starting in August 2020, I will be donating 15% of my after-tax income uh, in cash or in kind to uh, racial justice organizations. Um, she didn't specify which ones. She retained the quote-unquote harass. Now, of course, it is entirely possible that this is unrelated to my investigation. Um, <laughs> yeah, although, could be. <laughs> yeah, uh, not- notably, um, her husband took down his Instagram and he took down his blog. Uh, so clearly they knew somebody was asking around. Um, 
they never responded to my several requests for comments. So, you know, I can't confirm that information, although I suspect. Um, but yeah, she, you know, uh, what, I, what I think is sort of surprising to me about her last edit to her accountability statement where she says, I'm going to give 15% of my income. Uh, early in the page, she says, you know, your your responsibility as a white person is to quote, give until it hurts, uh, give until you can feel it, excuse me. Um, and uh, if, if, if only beginning August 2020 is she giving 15% of her income, was she not giving until she could feel it before August of 2020? Um, I asked her about this. She didn't respond. I shouldn't respond to my other questions, but so I can only speculate. But it does seem like uh, a surprising change in her behavior that she specifies as a change in her behavior and raised a question at what she was doing beforehand. Well, and on top of that, it's 15% after tax. I mean, even yes. the church well, it's, tells it's, you to tithe in, on, on the growth, not the net. Well, and it's 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 fifteen percent after tax in kind. Is, right. uh, so she could give you know fifteen percent of her presentation. She could do pro bono, and that would qualify. Oh well, that's that's helpful. So she could do that clan rally then. Okay, uh, uh, yeah, probably not. Um, so then uh, you also talk about you started looking. Oh, I need to ask you one other thing because you mentioned this harassment. Was anybody else calling around? Were you like, uh, were you competing with another journalist trying to get the story not, first or not something? Not to the best of my knowledge. So you um, were the sole harasser. Else. You were the only like, harasser. It's, it's it's entirely possible. And you know, I'm 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 happy to uh, pro- a- a- anyone who would like a copy of the emails that I sent to all of her. Um, uh, the listed donation recipients. I'm happy to write them. It was, you know, a very polite email. I said, "Can you confirm that Robin D'Angelo gave such and such a, you know, gave money on the following dates or during the following periods? And if so, would you mind telling me how much she spent? Thank you very much for, for to reach me at my number." Mm-hmm. Uh, which she may consider harassment. If that is in fact what she is alluding to, I would not consider harassment. I would consider it reporting. I dare say it sounds like she might have a case of white fragility on this matter she kind of reacted negatively towards this this uh this questioning it it seems to me like if you are actually providing these funds then you would want people to know that as as you know an an example right to say like this is what i mean when i talk about uh these accountability what this statement of accountability whatever um that this is what it looks like and this is you know 15 percent is is really i'm really going to feel it um not so much that she's going to sell any of her three homes though so this was interesting (laughs) she's got three houses um yes and um so how did you come across this Uh, you were just uh, this was i guess also what more harassment that you were engaged in (laughs) Uh, public records research and i don't want to you know discuss in detail sort of you know precisely where she lives because i try to avoid that sort of behavior but um you know i broadly speaking she owns a couple of homes in seattle where she works at the university of washington uh one of those appears to be occupied by her daughter who's in her late 30s uh but d'angelo and her husband's names are on the are on the title according to public records they have so they have those two homes and then they have a a charming getaway cabin which is out uh out in washington state out in the um out in the woods uh it seems like a very nice place based upon the photos that used to be up online of it um and they seem to enjoy their time there as i know i did not see any non-white friends joining her at her getaway cabin but maybe that's her white affinity group meeting um (laughs) 
but yeah, I mean, the, the, so the cumulative value of a home, according to tax assessors, is something on the order of $1.6 million. And it struck me, all three of the mortgages on these homes were acquired before her book was released in 2018. So it's not as though she hit Pater after she released a best-selling book. She was already quite wealthy. Yeah. And then she released, you know, wealthy enough to own three homes. And then she released a best-selling book that has only gotten better uh, has only generated more money for her since then. So, you know, yeah. she, she was wealthy before all of this. And so, I mean, ostensibly, she could have taken all of that money that she made off of this book and used it for all of the, the what, accountability uh, right. statements. Like just, hey, I'm already wealthy. I got I did this book, and here's the way to be anti-racist. Here, take all my money, right? You'd feel that, right? <laughs> one of the um one of the things that she's been doing this year that stuck out to me is that so um she gives she gives public events that are all virtual now because everything's virtual now. Uh and those you somewhere between 60 and 175 dollars a pop. Uh but she's partnered with a group, I think it's Educators for Racial Equity. Uh I think that's right, who all of the all of the profits from those events are supposed to be given away. So profits means after production costs and there's a seven percent uh, fee associated. But after all that, those should be given away. But she doesn't give away any of the revenue from her. She gives away five percent. She requests that five percent of the revenue from her private events be given to uh, racial justice organizations. She doesn't mandate. It, she doesn't do it herself. But she requests the five percent of the really lucrative ones, the ones that you know it was quoted forty thousand dollars for. She holds on to most of that. It's just the public stuff where it's you know two you know one hundred fifty bucks a seat. That money is mostly given away. Oh well, that's that that's helpful to some degree, right? That's that's an effort. Got to applaud the effort. Um, the name of the piece is "The Wages of Woke: How Robin D'Angelo Got Rich." Peddling White Fragility. Charles Fane Lehman, the staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon who wrote it. Charles, is there anything else on this that you want to add that is interesting or important that you want folks to know before we let you go? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I I see this as, and I talked about this a little bit earlier in the interview, but I see this as archetypical of, and she's really the success story of this industry that has mo- had made an enormous amount of money and exercising an enormous amount of power selling people a product that, again, as far as we can tell, the science says, simply does not work. You know, I am like every reasonable American in favor of less racism and less discrimination, want everyone to feel included and involved in the workplace and elsewhere. Uh, but the thing that she's selling doesn't actually seem to do that. Mostly what it seems to do is create hostility between races. And she's gotten incredibly wealthy doing it, and I think she's not the only person. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I would encourage listeners to think very hard about the amount of influence that this particular way of thinking about the issues of race in America, uh, how much how much influence that may have in their lives and others' lives and in our society as a whole, because I think it's substantial. Charles Fane Lehman from the Washington Free Beacon. Thanks for your time today, sir. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. We're going to take a deeper dive into this white fragility and anti-racism concept. But first, here's something you want to take a deep dive into, your bed. And if you don't have a bed that you feel like you're like taking that deep dive into, then go to Mattress Man, either online at mattressmanstores.com or go to any of their four local stores in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. Uh, They do ship nationwide, and let the sleep consultants help you find the right bed 
for you. Five-star delivery service uh, and a 120-day comfort guarantee. They also have going on right now the triple zero deal. Zero down, 0% APR for up to 24 months and zero payments for 90 days. Also, hot deals to keep you cool for this hot August night. $3.99 for Queen Gel Memory Foam Mattress. And you can get a free bedding bundle, including sheets, protectors, and pillows with the purchase of select mattresses. Also, they are the only place to find the Biltmore collection. Well, I mean, except for, obviously, the Biltmore. So, like, the same mattresses that Biltmore has at their hotel and inn, you can get from Mattress Man. They're made in Fayetteville. Uh, They also have, by the way, Nature's Spa is the newest brand of mattresses by Paramount Sleep. Uh, These are the mattresses featured at Blackberry Farm in Tennessee. So they have all different kinds of mattresses. One of them will help you get the best night's sleep you've ever had. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. All right, so what is white fragility? Right, we, we we got a really good explanation there from Charles. Uh, there are a lot of academics that have now been taking this up with the recent success or reemergence of the book. And I mentioned earlier that I read a piece by John McWhorter. This was published in The Atlantic uh, earlier this month, July 15th. And uh, he says that he finally got around to reading the book. And he said, D'Angelo is an education professor and most prominently, a diversity consultant who argues that whites in America must face the racist bias implanted in them by a racist society. Their resistance to acknowledging this, she says, constitutes a white fragility that they must overcome in order for meaningful progress on both interpersonal and societal racism to happen. Okay. Uh, He says, I'm not convinced rather I have learned that one of America's favorite advice books of the moment is actually a racist tract. Despite the sincere intentions of its author, the book diminishes black people in the name of dignifying us. This is unintentional, of course, like the racism D'Angelo sees in all white people. (laughs) So John McWhorter says that she operates from the now familiar concern with white privilege. Uh, aware of the unintentional racism that's ever lurking inside of her, you know, that she was inculcated from birth by the white supremacy on which America was founded. So to atone for this original sin, she is devoted to endlessly exploring, acknowledging, and seeking to undo white people's complicity with and investment in racism. Okay. To D'Angelo, Any failure to do this work, as adherents of this paradigm often put it, renders one racist. Okay, so if you don't do what she's telling you to do, then you're a racist. Oh, and by the way, when you go to do the thing that she wants you to do, she's also going to call you racist. (laughs) You see how this you see how this works, right? Basically, the concept is this. Any system that results in racial inequality as an outcome. Uh, is itself then racist, okay? So if it doesn't matter what the system is, this is what people are talking about when they're saying uh, systemic racism, institutional racism, right? Any system where the outcomes uh, produce some sort of a racial inequality, that makes the system racist. So if you're not seeking the destruction of that system, then you are complicit in the racism, right? So you got to say, burn it all down. And if you're not trying to burn it all down, then you're racist. 
And if you don't tear down the system, then you're what's called an assimilationist. Okay, so (laughs) so you're either demanding it be torn down um, or you are complicit in the racism. And if you're not trying to tear it down, you're an assimilationist, which means people who reject assimilation will be less successful. Right. This is the the inherent, uh, I would submit, kind of racisty outcome that they are actually advancing. Right. That if I tear down the system, like whatever the system is, like, let's let's call it. Oh, I don't know, because there's so many things now that are being defined as white, uh, like being on time, which I know a lot of people. They're not on time, folks. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know how that got to be a white thing. <laughs> right? uh, I've got a whole list, by the way. Yes, the uh, the Smithsonian helpfully put one together, a nice, colorful graphic for us all to look at about what whiteness means. Um, but if you're not trying to tear down the system, then you're an assimilationist. In other words, you want people to assimilate into the system, right? And let's say the system is, um, you know, uh, how to be successful in life, how to make money in this capitalist society, in this system, okay? And if you are an assimilationist, then you want people, I would submit, you want people to succeed. And I do. I want everybody to succeed because I do believe, and maybe this is just my whiteness talking, but I do believe that the free market capitalist system is hands down the best system ever devised uh, to order society and, and economies. I do. I believe it is built on freedom. It is also amoral, which means, yes, bad people can use it, but also good people can use it. And so here is also the key. It's uh Part of, I know this is going to shock you, but all of this anti-racism stuff uh, just bubbling beneath the surface is, you guessed it, socialism. Exactly. It's leftism. It's always leftism. That's always the case. Always the case. Um, There was a piece here by John Sexton at hotair.com. And uh, he said that uh, there's no real evidence that D'Angelo's training works and maybe some evidence that they're likely to create a backlash. Um, If you teach people that proper English, rational thought, science, and even clocks are all ways, quote, in which white supremacy operates to hold back minorities. You're not going to be terribly interested in seeing students pursue excellence in schools that focus on reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? Like, this is this is the problem when you're telling people that, oh, no, no, you don't need to learn proper English and rational thought and the scientific method. Those are concepts of whiteness, Okay, so let's not teach all the people those things, right? So then who succeeds in the society? Is it the people who rejected scientific method, rational thought, speaking English? Are those the people that you think are going to be more successful? Or do you think that you're actually harming them, right? You're disabling them in the society that they are living in. By the way, This overlays nicely with the anti-capitalism movement because capitalism is a system where excellence and rationalism matter, right? D'Angelo actually states herself in a New York Times interview, quote, capitalism is so bound up with racism. I avoid critiquing capitalism. I don't need to give people reasons to dismiss me. But capitalism is dependent on inequality, on an underclass. If the model is profit over everything else, you're not going to look at your policies to see what is most racially equitable. Now, 
Think about what she just said in the context of what Charles Fane Lehman told us about how much money this woman has been raking in with this anti-bias BS, right? Or this anti-racism training. Capitalism, she says, is dependent on inequality. You realize capitalism has lifted virtually the entire planet out of grinding abject poverty over the last 30 years in my lifetime. I mean, think about that. What other system? There is no other system. I'll answer the question before I even ask it. There is no other system. And to say that somehow or another, well, that's a that's whiteness. Look, I don't care what race used the, the, the superior economic system. If it's a superior system, we should use it, right? We should use the superior system. I would also point out, by the way, that socialists and communists, they were also, that philosophy was also founded by white guys. Okay, so there isn't some sort of like, is there, is there like some sort of alternative out there that we have to find an economic system that isn't founded by someone who's white and that would make it better somehow? We live in a society that unfortunately for a lot of these folks who apparently care so very much about this, it was founded by white people. And I can't change that. You can't either. Nobody can. It's already been done. Hundreds of years ago it happened. So the country was founded by people with certain principles and they enacted those principles and what they are. And so this is why I keep saying this is an attempt to tear down the institutions. All this is, is iconoclasm in another form. And what the, the, the true, what I, what I would submit is evil of it is that you're, you're telling people don't do the things that you need to do to be successful in this society in which you live. I don't understand how that's helping people, right? You're, you're crippling them. Do you think that they're going to be better off destitute? Do you think they're going to be better off not being able to function in the society? Now, if you have a website that can't function very well, um, you know who you need to call. My friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design. That's right. Uh, you know your website is important, right? Um, now more than ever. Uh, you need to turn up in search engine results and you want it to look professional and user friendly. And uh, while you do know your business, you might not know a lot about website design and maintenance, but Schaefer Smith does. Schaefer Smith Design. Great design can solve a lot of your website's problems, actually. Really can. Figuring out how to direct traffic to certain places and do it effectively and efficiently can solve a lot of problems. He does uh, He does it all. Photos, online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance and security. He even does logos. He did my logo for the show. Go to SchaeferSmith.com and get the most out of your website. That's SchaeferSmith.com. So John McWhorter writes again at The Atlantic that D'Angelo has spent a very long time conducting diversity seminars in which whites, exposed to her catechism, regularly tell her, uh, many while crying and yelling or storming towards the exit, uh, that she's insulting them and being reductionist. In other words, everything reduces down to the race. Uh, Yet none of this seems to have led her to look inward. Rather, she sees herself as the bearer of an exalted wisdom that these objectors fail to perceive. Blinded by their inner racism, they are. D'Angelo is less a coach than a proselytizer. When writers who are this sure of their convictions turn out to make a compelling case, it is genuinely exciting. This is sadly not one of those times. For example, she insinuates that when white women cry upon being called racist, black people are reminded 
of white women crying as they lied about being raped by black men eons ago. <laughs> this is what she says. Oh, by the way, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this or not. Robin D'Angelo is white. Anyway, uh, there is there's no evidence. She doesn't know this. There's no evidence that she ever presents to support this claim that when a black person sees a white woman crying, that it somehow recalls these memories of white women crying while describing or lying, I should say, about being raped by a black guy. And an especially weird passage is where she breezily decries the American higher education system in which she says no one ever even talks about racism. Really? No one talks about racism in higher education. Okay. Uh, That's just insane. She also writes as if certain shibboleths of the black left, for instance, that all disparities between white and black people are due to racism of some kind. uh, She says that um, these represent the incontestable truth. This ideological bias is hardly unique to her, and a reader could just look past it, along with the other lapses in argumentation that I have noted, says McWhorter. But if she offered some kind of higher wisdom, it would be different. The problem is that white fragility is the prayer book for what can only be described as a cult. We must consider what is required to pass muster as a non-fragile white person. All right. If you refer, here you go. If you refer to a bad neighborhood, then uh, then you're using code for black. You know, call it a black neighborhood. Well, that makes you a racist. By D'Angelo's logic, he says, you're not to describe such neighborhoods at all, even in your own head. You must not ask black people about their experiences and feelings because it isn't their responsibility to educate you. Instead, you're supposed to consult books and websites. Never mind that upon doing this, you will be accused of holding actual black people at a remove reading the wrong sources, or drawing the wrong lessons from them. You must never cry in black people's presence as you explore your racism, uh, not even in sympathy, because then all the attention goes to you instead of black people. And if you, by the way, this was a term I heard at the Asheville City Council meeting, all the callers were talking about centering. This is right out of her work, centering us. You're centering yourself because you're white. These people have drunk the Kool-Aid. They're in the cult. And if you object to any of the feedback that D'Angelo offers you about your racism, well, then you are engaging in a type of bullying whose function is to obscure the racism, protect white dominance, and regain white equilibrium which is a pretty strong charge to make against people who, according to D'Angelo, don't even conceive of their own whiteness, right? These are people, according to D'Angelo, that really don't even think about themselves being white, yet they do all of this stuff in order to regain white equilibrium. So if you're white, make no mistake, you will never succeed in this work that she demands of you. It's lifelong, and you will die a racist just as you will die a sinner. Remember also that you are not to express yourself except to say, Amen. Namely, thou shalt not utter, quote, I know people of color. I marched in the 60s. You are judging me. You don't know me. You are generalizing. I disagree. The real oppression is class. I just said one little innocent thing. Some people find offense when there is none. You hurt my feelings. I can't say anything right. Okay. Any of those sentences <laughs> indicates you're racist. This is an abridgment, by the way, of an entire chapter 
which the whole point is to silence people. Whites are not even allowed to say, I don't feel safe. Only black people can say that in the book. If you are white, you're, you're solely to listen to D'Angelo as she tars you as morally stained. And by the end, she has white Americans muzzled, straight-jacketed, tied down, and chloroformed for good measure. But for what? For what? And here's the real problem, he says. Well, first, let me tell you about another real problem. Getting your house sold, that could be very difficult. Um, but don't worry, Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they will get your house sold quickly and for more money. It's what she does. She is the only agent that I would use to sell a house. She outsells 99% of the realtors in North Carolina. She's the only agent that we, that we are using to buy a house. Christy and I are now looking for a house. We are using Rowena Patton. We're just getting started. It's very early. Um... But this is this is the process that we're going through. And we've already started getting the filtered results. Mountainhomehunt.com is where we go. And we put in our criteria. And now we're getting emails. As soon as a property comes on the market, boom, we know about it. Give her a call. 333-4483. Mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. Now, we are unpacking a lot of this white fragility nonsense. Um, the problem right? That McWhorter cites here. McWhorter's a brilliant guy. And he's like, by the end, he's got white Americans muzzled, straightjacketed, tied down and chloroformed. And, and, and for what's, what, what's the purpose? And this is the real problem. She does not see fit to address why all of this agonizing soul searching is necessary to forging change in society, right? But getting to solutions is a foundation of white fragility. In other words, the whole point is the suffering. <laughs> there's no there's no point where it's like, yes, we overcame the racism. Note the scare quotes around solutions, too, as if wanting such a thing were somehow ridiculous. This is what she calls like, oh, you're just interested in solutions. That's white. That's whiteness or something. No, the whole point is the suffering. In 2020, John McWhorter writes, as opposed to 1920, I neither need nor want anyone to muse on how whiteness privileges them over me, nor do I need wider society to undergo teachings in how to be exquisitely sensitive about my feelings. I see no connection between D'Angelo's brand of re-education and vigorous, constructive activism in the real world on issues of importance to the black community. He says, I can't imagine that any black readers could willingly submit themselves to D'Angelo's ideas while considering themselves adults of ordinary self-regard and strength. He said, few books about race have more openly infantilized black people than this supposedly authoritative tome. Because what is she describing here? What is she laying a blueprint for, right? For how white people need to make sure that they don't uh, anger, offend, or hurt these people these other people, in this case, black people, that are apparently incapable of hearing what you have to say, right? Like that is such an infantilizing position to adopt. And in the end, he says, white fragility is in the end, a book about how to make certain educated white readers feel better about themselves. D'Angelo's outlook rests upon a depiction of black people as endlessly delicate poster children within a self gratifying fantasy about how white Americans need to think or better yet, just stop thinking. 
right? Her answer to white fragility, in other words, entails an elaborate and pitilessly dehumanizing condescension towards black people. The sad truth is, he says, anyone falling under the sway of this blinkered, self-satisfied, punitive stunt of a primer has been taught by a well-intentioned but tragically misguided pastor how to be racist in a whole new way. That's John McWhorter in The Atlantic. Now, Tim is my friend at Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Now more than ever, you're going to need Old Grouch in your life. If you don't already have an Old Grouch in your life, uh, Tim can fill that role for you. Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. He's got an expanded line of first aid kits and medical supplies for all kinds of emergencies. Uh, He has face masks that are locally made by a disabled veteran family. Uh, They make them out of military parachutes so they're soft and they're lightweight and the straps are from the the parachute lines as well he has steel gas cans these are the old school ones the pre-band kinds the good ones basically and he's got body armor all kinds uh they are made to nato specs this uh these body armor pieces are in store or over the phone purchases only he also has tons of real u.s military surplus for more than three decades, Old Grouch's Military Surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde. Yes, the shop is open Monday through Saturday. Across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. And then, of course, there was the story out of the what National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, this is the Smithsonian, and they, po- they promoted material about whiteness and white culture on its website in an effort to discuss race and equity and inclusion they used various graphics and videos and quotes from so-called race experts like robin d'angelo and others and they lay out why and how white people should address their own race Quote, since white people in America hold most of the political, institutional, and economic power, they receive advantages that non-white groups do not. The page is labeled Talking About Race, and it outlines its definitions for white privilege, white racial identity, white supremacy, and white nationalism, while promoting a variety of resources on how to address white fragility. Whiteness and white racialized identity refer to the way that white people, their customs, culture, and beliefs operate as the standard by which all other groups are compared. Like, I I don't know, like, this to me sounds kind of racist-y. Like, you're reducing all of a people down to a single similarity, that they have white skin, so therefore they have the same, quote, culture. Uh, I could tell you as one who was born in New York on Long Island and then moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina at the age of 18. Uh, Not all white people have the same culture. (laughs) I can tell you that firsthand. Here is uh, part. I've got the graphic here from the Smithsonian talking about race uh, uh, aspects and assumptions of white culture in the United States. Uh, For example, Rugged individualism. That's what that's a white thing. Did you know that? That's a white thing. That the individual is the primary unit. Self-reliance, independence and autonomy, highly valued and rewarded. Individuals assumed to be in control of their environment. Quote, you get what you deserve. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that means. Because uh, I think karma is like, doesn't that word come from a non-white tradition? Anyway, then there was this white culture, the family structure. The nuclear family of father, mother, 2.3 children is the ideal social unit. Now, 
pay no attention to all of the science and studies and research that show this to be the truth, right? That, that doesn't make it white. And by the way, black folks, they also valued this family structure, not just here in America for most of the founding, right? Uh, right, But also in other countries where they live, they value the nuclear family as well. They say husband is breadwinner and head of household. <laughs> uh, okay, that, that may have been the standard culture of i don't know like most of societies on the planet for a long time it's not so much anymore wife is homemaker and subordinate to the husband yeah try telling that to a lot of wives white wives you you go yeah good luck with that (laughs) children should have their own rooms and be independent uh yeah i grew up with my brother we shared a room my sisters shared a room as well and when I got my own room, when my brother went to college, that's how I got my own room for two years. <laughs> um, emphasis on this is white culture, an aspect and assumption of white culture is an emphasis on the scientific method, objective, rational, linear thinking, cause and effect relationships, quantitative emphasis. This is the scientific method is is a white thing. Now, history is a white thing. Protestant work ethic is a white thing. That hard work is the key to success. Work before play. And if you don't meet your goals, you didn't work hard enough. Uh, religion. Christianity is the norm. Why, why would you say that? Could it be that the nation was founded by Christians? Um, status and power and authority that wealth equals worth. Your job is who you are. Respect authority and a heavy value on ownership of goods, space, and property. <laughs> a heavy value on the ownership of property. Right. It's in the constitution right there for a reason. I do value that. Yeah. You know why? Because to obtain property, you usually have to trade something of value to get it. And that something of value can be anything, but usually what it reduces down to is time. And what is time but units of your life, just right marked out in little blocks? That's what time is. So when you trade time, you're trading portions of your life for some other type of a commodity uh, or currency that you then trade for other things that other people have produced. So yes, property is pretty important. Also, it's white to be future-oriented, to plan for your future, to delay gratification, Time, follow rigid time schedules, time viewed as a commodity, as I just said. That's my whiteness talking, apparently, to view time as a commodity, because you don't get any more of it, and you don't know how much you have of it on this planet. Um, They go into holidays and justice and competition and communication, uh, like be polite. That's a white thing. Be polite. And the King's English rules. That's, That's a white thing, I guess. That's a wrap for this episode. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.